Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about protecting our children from domestic abuse. But before we jump into that conversation, I'd like to take a moment to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. It's something that we started a few years ago, and I believe it is the most robust collection of gospel-centered material regarding domestic abuse intervention and prevention. You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at our website, chrismoles.org, and you can sign up there. It's a monthly fee or a small annual fee. gets you access to hundreds of hours of video-based content along with written material, um, toolbox items, bonus material, live Q&As, all part of the PeaceWorks University membership experience. We'd love to see you over there. If you enjoy the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. All right, let's uh, spend a few moments talking about um, the idea of protecting our children. We get a lot of questions about children and domestic abuse at PeaceWorks, and I've never felt completely qualified to discuss counseling with children or programs or systems with children. I tend to refer uh, kids to Uh, folks who are more specialized and equipped in that area. But I do address on uh, different occasions, and I have in the PeaceWorks podcast, the effects of domestic abuse on children, uh, the sociological, cultural, emotional, mental effects of witnessing domestic violence, not necessarily being a target or a victim of child abuse, but witnessing, let's say, mom uh, being abused by dad. But some of the questions we've been getting lately regard the idea of how do I protect my kids? How do I navigate being a victim of abuse while being, for our purposes today, a mother, someone who cares for their kids? And I guess right off the bat, one of the things I could say to that is, you know, none of us uh, in people helping capacities are going to have the extent of information or the wisdom or the insight that you have as a mother. We might be able to give you some things to think about, but at the end of the day, we don't necessarily always know what's best for your kids. This question carries with it a great deal of weight because the idea of children witnessing acts of domestic abuse is devastating in many ways. It's uh, inappropriate, unhealthy, sinful, wicked, and damaging. However, uh, with most issues of abuse, one size does not fit all, and our response will not necessarily be uniform across every scenario, every situation, or every family. So I just want to mention five things today that might be helpful Uh, in protecting our kids. And the first is probably the most obvious, but 
at the same time the most difficult, and that is to take a preventative approach. I think one of the things we can do if we're not currently in an abusive relationship, or perhaps we, you're a young person listening to this podcast, um, maybe you're not in an intimate relationship, or you're beginning a relationship and you have some red flags, some concerns, let me encourage you, just prayerfully consider the weight of those red flags. There's very little we can do from a preventative standpoint regarding protecting our children from witnessing domestic abuse beyond not getting involved in an abusive relationship. Now, that's easier said than done, and I know that this point speaks to a small minority of individuals because most folks don't see the abuse early on, or the abuse isn't present early on, or it escalates over time. But if you're in a dating or non-committal relationship, if you're in a pre-marriage marriage relationship or even a pre-child relationship, and the warning flags and the warning signs are growing through issues of control and isolation, intimidation, manipulation, and such, let me encourage you to take the steps for your own safety now with the thought of not engaging in that relationship that may put future children at risk. Now, again, that's a very small minority because for most of us on this conversation, listening to this podcast, it's too late for that. And for many abusers, um, bringing children into the world is a great tactic for maintaining control. And, you know, having multiple children is a unfortunately, a a means by which an abuser can maintain their power and control. So preventative measures are not always available to us. Uh, We may not see the abuse coming. We may be in a committed relationship. We may already have children with our abuser. So the second thing I think would be helpful is just to understand briefly how domestic abuse affects kids, that it does have an effect. I think if we can speak truth to ourselves to realize that the kids are affected, even if they're not physically present, they're physically affected by the words and the intimidation and the violence that's occurring in our home. The precedents, the normalization, the shame associated with domestic abuse all have effects on kids. We won't go into you know a deep dive into that. You can find out more in previous podcasts or other lectures that I've given or others have given, but just a few things to consider is the impact of trauma, that witnessing violence is traumatizing, that it could um, produce uh, mimicking type disorders or issues that will crop up as a result of the trauma or in attempts to control the trauma, such as anxiety, um, control-based issues like obsessive-compulsive behaviors or um, issues such as cutting or eating disorders um, may be a coping mechanism associated with trauma of witnessing abuse. Kids can become depressed and withdrawn. Kids can think that violence is an acceptable way in which to interact with the world and can begin to normalize it both as a future abuser or as a future victim. And so domestic abuse has an impact on kids. And so one of the things you know we can do is through understanding 
begin to have honest conversations with ourselves about the impact that our partner's violence and abuse is having on our kids. It may inspire us or prompt us to seek proper safety measures and means of escape that we hadn't thought of before. Now, I know it's easier said than done. The entire conversation of how do we protect our kids from domestic abuse has to have that caveat, easier said than done, because we know that the system and the, the culture and the courts are not fully cooperative or helpful as we would like them to be when it comes to protecting our kids. So understanding preventative measures, maybe you can take the initiative early not to get into a relationship, not to have children. For most of us, that's not the case. So you find yourself with an abusive spouse, with children, it's important to know how this abuse may be affecting your kids. Third, it's important to begin to dialogue uh, with yourself and your kids about ways in which to keep them safe. Just brainstorm a little bit about the role and the responsibility uh, that you have and your kids will have in an aggressive or abusive episode. Now let me pause for just a moment and say this. What I'm about to say, the advice I'm about to give, needs to be understood in the context of kids should not have to function this way. The abuse perpetrated by your partner is creating scenarios that kids should not have to operate in. So it's important, first of all, to recognize that you're not responsible, but you are reacting responsibly. And then secondly, that this is unnatural, should be unnatural or abnormal for kids. The first is helping your kids understand danger and when it's appropriate or helpful for them to reach out for help, to call 911. If your child is in danger or um, one of their siblings is in immediate danger, they should have the freedom to call the police. And it may negatively affect you, but it could positively affect them in the moment. Now, again, if you're an outsider listening in and you're not in an abusive relationship and you're a people helper, what I just said may have sound confusing to you because you may think that calling 911 is the first course of action. But if you have a victim in your life or survivor that's informing your approach or your help, then they will tell you that calling 911 could be one of the most dangerous things you can do. Could put them in harm's way, could uh, trigger escalated violence, could lead to more covert tactics to keep law enforcement and the courts at bay. But a victim will also tell you if there is a means of intervention that can save my children from harm, even if it puts me in additional harm, it's worth doing. And so understand that there may come a time in escalated violence where your child, <clears throat> excuse me, your teenager, your uh, preteen may need to call 911 to instigate an, an intervention that may protect them in the short term, even if it puts you in some additional danger. When you when you involve outside influences like that, the thought process is, I want to do the best I can for my kids. And again, kids shouldn't be put in this scenario, but you understand when violence escalates, that may be their best next step. Consider code words or phrases. Uh, consider safety planning with your kids that will include things like, um, 
a, a scale, an escalating scale of code words from maybe something simple as it's time to find a quiet place, which is code for you need to exit the room to keep yourself safe, to um, we need help, which may trigger the response to go to a designated neighbor's house or a family member's house or to call 911. Having code words and safety planning is not a bad idea, especially if there's been escalating violence. Things such as we have a big problem may be a code word for go to a neighbor's house, go to aunt so-and-so's house, and let them know um, that we have a problem. Talking to your kids about safety and the reason why you have to have safety can be important even though it could put you in additional danger. So it comes back to that caveat I said at the beginning, right? All of these cases are different. So protecting our kids requires a lot of wisdom because you may not be free to have those kinds of conversations. You know, with that same idea of keeping keeping our kids safe, using code words, using plans, you yourself as a, as a victim or survivor should have a safety plan. A safety plan can be as simple as a few notes on an index card about uh, how you're going to take care of yourself, where you're going to go if there's an escalation and so forth, to maybe a larger uh, document or videotape or, or phone conversation that has happened with an advocate that has things such as go bags and safe houses where you can escape and how you're going to interact with the kids uh, in that process. Because... Uh, you know, the fourth thing is even in cases of abuse where the courts are involved, custody and supervision are, are real realities that we'll have to navigate. So let's talk for just a moment about that. So number four, custody and visitation. Uh, until there's a court order given, uh, until the court says that one parent has temporary custody or permanent custody, both parents have equal rights to the kids. That's pretty universal across the board. And the, the assumption I think sometimes we operate on, especially those of us who are outside of the system, is that obviously the courts are going to take domestic abuse into consideration. But I want to warn you that that's not always the case. And many courts do not take domestic abuse into consideration. The court will operate on what they call the best interest of the children. The best interest of the children. And that has a lot of varying interpretations. And so your judge may see the quote-unquote best interest of the children to be having as much time with both parents as possible. Or possibly even being in a two-parent household making conditions very difficult for divorce, separation, or safety planning. Um, so it's important to recognize that the courts may even make it difficult uh, for safety planning. The courts may think the best interest of the kids is 50-50 custody, with no inclination or thought to the abuse that you have experienced because your partner hasn't directly abused the children. Now, I have known some men who were abusive to their spouses, but never once harmed their children physically. That does not mean that they are a safe parent. 
especially when you consider the way in which they treat and respond to their partner. However, the courts don't always see it that way. Some courts may see the best interests of the children after a domestic abuse situation as being having restricted access to the abusive parent, such as monitored um, or supervised visitation. Um, many shelters, advocates, people who are in the work can help you process that, but I think that's one of the biggest hindrances to victims leaving abusive relationships is the uncertainty surrounding the well-being of their children. And I think we as pastors and people helpers and leaders, we need to be not only aware of that, but we need to be increasingly respectful of that, understanding that not all courts and systems and responses are going to be favorable towards a survivor. And in fact, Looking at it across the board, most of them are not. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and a lot of problems associated with visitation and custody. There are a couple types of visitation that are usually associated uh, with, um, with these type of cases. The first is what they would call you know, uh, shared custody, which means there's, there's no supervised visitation. It's just you have a neutral, you're kind of dropping off point. There's a handoff point. And that, that is one of the scariest times for a victim of domestic abuse who's handing their children off to their abuser or through a third party. Uh, supervised visitation usually involves a neutral site. So sometimes you'll have a, a children's center or a family wellness center or a child first monitoring agency or something like that. And they will they will, as staff, monitor the visitation, either through um, either present in the room or through glass or what have you. But the idea is that it's very temporary and it's um, supervised by a third party so to make sure there's appropriate interaction. Uh, monitored exchanges would be the other form of visitation that we kind of talked about where you have this handoff um, that is monitored by a custodian, a parent, a designated guardian, a third party, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent who will meet the visiting parent, right, and do a handoff and then they return at the, the, the prearranged time, the, the drop off and pick up. And that's pretty normal. But you can see how that form of uh, visitation along with shared custody could be very unnerving. And one of the things that frankly keeps victims and survivors in abusive relationships, the fear, the uncertainty of their kids' safety. Uh, lastly, just some other things to consider is talking to our kids about domestic abuse. Again, I know that some of this advice is maybe not something that you as a listener can put into place right now. Maybe you're not in a situation where you can have open conversations with your kids. Maybe they're too young. Uh, maybe they are, for lack of a better word, brainwashed or, or persuaded by the abusive parent to such a degree that it would not be beneficial. Uh, maybe you don't have the time or you can't trust your kids with the information um, because of their relationship with the abusive partner or the proximity of the abusive partner. But let's assume for a moment that the opposite is true, that, that you as a listener, and some of you may be here, could have an honest conversation with your kids about what's happening. 
that the violence and abuse that they're seeing is not okay. So many times we hear of kids who blame the victim, blame the survivor, blame mom in particular because she allows it to continue. It may be a point in time where you can have a conversation with, you know, there's no feasible way for me to stop it right now. There's a lot of fear associated with how I could respond or what may happen to us. And so the violence is not okay. And the fact that it's occurring is not my um, is not my endorsement of the violence. Um, begin to model, when possible, ways in which to deal with relationship conflict or conflict in general appropriately. This happens best, I think, after separation. I, I had an advocate friend of mine who used to tell victims that this time, this time of separation, this time of co-parenting is your opportunity to show your children what a healthy person looks like. And they will probably gravitate towards the unhealthy parent early on because of the amount of freedom and um, fun that they can have over there, right? But eventually, Lord willing, they will see you as a role model. And once time goes on, they'll cling to you as someone that's trustworthy. Um, but it takes a, a, lot, a lot of work. It takes time. Uh, make sure that they know that the violence is not their fault. We talked earlier about these um, uh, mental health issues that tend to accompany trauma associated with witnessing domestic violence, such as cutting and eating disorders and uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors. Those tend to, not to get too clinical, just to be very pragmatic, they tend to gravitate around the desire for control. And some children will, will over-function and take responsibility for the violence that they see uh, one parent using against another and will attempt to control other aspects of their life, taking the blame or punishing themselves when the reality is it's not their fault. Uh, I think art, art therapy is one of the things that I think is really rewarding in this area. I don't practice this, but I've worked with some uh, people in the past who've had kids draw pictures and express their feelings through art and really are able to capture a lot of the things that are going on with kids. And so maybe connecting them to, especially younger kids, to play therapists and art therapists who can kind of help them express themselves and uh, get a clearer understanding of what's happening in their heart. And then let the kids know that they're free to talk. They can talk to you uh, in safe settings about what they're experiencing. I wish I had more. I wish I had a formula that would say, this is how you protect your kids. But as I hope you've gathered in our time today, this isn't a one-size-fits-all. And we can't guarantee anything in life um, to protect our kids from. But certainly when we're in an abusive relationship, uh, we can't always protect our kids in every single moment. But we can begin to take steps toward our own safety, our own sanity, in the hopes of providing for both the safety and sanity of our kids. I hope today was helpful. I really appreciate everybody who is part of the PeaceWorks podcast. Uh, I'm thankful for each one of you. Be sure to rate and review the podcast. Let the platform you're listening on know how much you appreciate the content that we deliver here each and every week. Until the next time uh, we see you, God bless.